some of us are drawn to darkness. Fear has a powerful gravity to it. It's easy to resist it at first, but there's a compelling fascination that some of us just cannot break free from. Not that we want to. In very short order, we're in the gravity well, pulled deeper and deeper into the mystery. The strange and the uncanny greet us at every stop along the way, but it's a cost of pulling aside the veil and looking at the machinery that runs reality. Gnosis is the reward. Those of us seeking it know that it's at the end of the darkest dungeon ever crawled. That's where our faith lies, actually. We know that it's there in our heart of hearts, and so we endure the worst that the subtle forces have to offer. And even though the treasure at the end is the same for all of us, our motivations for that quest differ from adventurer to adventurer. Some of us simply have to know. We've lived a life so full of strangeness that the fascination pulls us toward a goal of simply understanding why these things happen to us. We need to know what's at the heart of the infernal machine and who is pulling the levers. Some of us simply want out of this cycle. Life is literally the hell that so many fear in the afterlife. And that's a rather dim view to have on life, but look around you. In spite of the creature comforts that you've surrounded yourself with to convince yourself that this is all worth the trips around the sun, can you confidently say that life is easy in a paradise? You live a life of sufficient luxury to afford the gear that allows you to listen to a podcast while a world away, entire continents of people toil endlessly to produce the diamonds and the chocolate that sustain the very empires that colonize and oppress them. It's dark shit. And you can call me cynical all you like, but I'm actually an optimist at heart. In the small handful of episodes released thus far, I've made the occasional reference to a secret life. And if you follow me on social media, you know that it's not much of a secret, actually. I study and practice magic in the occult sense, in pursuit of the magnum opus, the great work. Through the abuse of chemistry and a cycle of madness that took me right up to the edge of the abyss five short years ago, a split second from voluntarily throwing myself into its endless depths. I caught a glimpse of something on the other side of that darkness that radiates a light so bright and so beautiful that I can't rest until I see it again. Some of us grope our way through the darkness alone. We're the hermit of the tarot, leading ourselves by our own light. But some of us need a hierophant. I'm Brian White, and this is Fear is the Mind Killer. My guest today is one such hierophant. Alan Greenfield is many things to many people. He's an accomplished researcher of paranormal phenomena. He's a respected figure in the field of ufology. He's an occultist of great knowledge and experience. He's an author of strange books which explore the frontier lands where those fields intersect. To fans of the paranormal documentary obsession Hellier, he's the trickster and an initiator. But to me, Alan is a good friend and a mentor. He stands at the vanguard of a modern magical order which approaches Gnosticism with the same enthusiasm and approach to discovery as the open source software movement. The Congregational Illuminist movement breaks down the dogma and rigid hierarchy of magical lodges and uses those practices as tools to pry every ounce of enlightenment from the icy grip of our cosmic wardens. In this episode, we discuss fear as a necessity in the quest for enlightenment, its inevitability and how a world without fear would be a terribly boring place. Alan also discusses a couple of spooky incidents which informed the person he would ultimately become. 
and I apologize in advance. The audio gets a little voipy in places, and the clicking sound you hear throughout is Alan fidgeting with something on his side of the mic. And if you like what you hear, you can subscribe to Fear is the Mind Killer on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. While you're there, don't hesitate to leave a five-star review. It helps the show gain traction in a world full of podcasts and the Archon's algorithms, which decide whose podcast will rise to the attention of a broader audience. And now, here's Alan. Yeah, it says recording in progress. Oh, and nice. You press that button, you know, in and the... I have to say, got it. Okay, got it. Uh, okay. Yes. So cool. that all the guys in St. Petersburg uh, can uh, record and then modify. So I can say, you know, the Soviet Union wasn't really all that bad. <laughs> However. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they're going to they're gonna make a deep fake of you. Holy Mother Russia today. With our czar, uh, czar Putin, a uh, member of the Romanov family, secretly. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so this is Fears the Mind Killer. Uh, I am your host Brian White, uh, as usual, recording from the blanket fort, uh, the blanket fort of doom. Um, and tonight, oh, I am joined by uh, by somebody who I am. I've, I've been very excited about this uh, this recording in particular. This is somebody who I've. I've known for a while and how we sort of came together is a very unusual story that sort of ties into the whole hellier phenomenon. Uh, this is uh, I'm joined with Alan Greenfield is the author of uh, books. You, uh, you may know as the, uh, the roots of modern magic uh, secret rituals of the men in black. And for those of you who are hip to the hellier TV show uh, you may know him as uh, the mind behind uh, uh, secret cipher of the UFOnauts. Alan, how are you? I'm doing just fine. And uh, mm -hmm. you can save yourself the trouble of buying two books by getting the complete secret cipher of the UFOnauts. That's plug number one. <laughs> plug hey, number two is I have uh, a new book out, never before actually published, and it's called The Grail Within. It's oh. the true quest for the Holy Grail not the uh you know the fake one so as as usually you tie directly into my like all like my all my favorite things um i have i have you to, to credit for sort of putting me on a particular path um and, and i'm is, sorry How can I, you um but uh yeah so you, you you sort of randomly reached out to me um through my my blog Codex Astarte related to an article I wrote that was very critical of, of hierarchy and initiation and ceremonial, uh, ceremonial magic. And at the time that, that you, you emailed me, it just sort of registered as I, as one of those mails that I occasionally get from, uh, from the contact form that was on that website. And then um, I still like, I looked at it again and I'm like, hold, well, wait a second this couldn't be like the, the Alan Greenfield I'm thinking of because I had bought a uh, cipher of the Euphonauts like a couple of years prior to that, when I was first sort of getting into uh, the chaos magic current and, and like there was a lot of crossover between UFOs and my interest in magic. And like that was sort of like a, like a perfect combination of those, of those two things. But at the same time, about like a week prior to that, I had finally kind of gotten around to watching Hellier, the first season, 
where like right in the first episode of the show, they, they name drop the book, which then goes on to be central to the mystery that they're following. And it blew my mind. And then uh, like a week later, the trailer for season two dropped and who is in it, but you. Me? Yeah, it's an entire, yeah, you know, and that yeah, was me. yeah, you're like in an entire episode called The Trickster, I believe, which I wasn't quite sure whether that was something I should be pleased with or something I should, you know, but you'll I'll, hear from my solicitors whenever <laughs> I can afford one. Based you know. entirely on my on my experience with you and just the way that your your book ties into the show, I think it's totally apropos. You have a very, I, 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 maybe you're aware of it or not, but you, you seem, your, your role in people's lives seems to be uh, uh, as an initiator, you know. Brilliantly done. <laughs> it usually takes people years. And then there are two categories, those that stay and those that head for the exits. Yeah. <laughs> and those that head for the exits, it's, it's too late. The doors are yeah, locked from the well, outside. I don't tell them that, though. You know, they come up and then they say, you know, I had a great idea. And I thought, well, you know, that was something I told you, but I don't need the credit. What I need is to hear it going on long after I have shuffled off to Buffalo. <laughs> As um, George Carlin once said, he said, I joined this religion that believes that when you die, you go to this garage in New Jersey. That's always <laughs> stuck with me. So. But you're a, you're, you're a, like a real like weirdos Renaissance man, because you've got a hand in, in, in a lot of places that are, are potently strange. You're, I mean, it's it's not just with the occult. You're also very active. I mean, I don't know how how active these days you are, but like uh, ufology has been something that that you have really kind of made a stake of uh, Mothman cryptids. I mean, like really the whole nine yards in terms of just strangeness. Yeah, even even uh, something as orthodox as who. Uh, oh, uh parapsychology. I mean, I've been involved in all of those things for uh, more years than most people have been upon this planet. But of course, I drank from the fountain of youth, and I'm getting younger all the time. <laughs> I can <All> tell. The... <laughs> um, so it's it, this like it's people, it's people like you, in particular, who I really kind of zeroed in on when I sort of made a guest wish list for the for the show and I'm so glad that you you joined me because there's something about the way that we look at fear you know those of us who make a habit or a hobby even out of staring into the abyss to see what's in there because where most people are confronted with these things their reaction is to is to run away but for us it it grabs a hold of you pulls you in deeper uh much to your you know your own detriment and and you know wherever it may lead it's usually not a very good place but you know there's something so compelling in it that we all we all go there so i'm very interested in knowing what it is that scares a person who just habitually faces fear and so i turn to you now and i ask what scares you? 
nobody asking me that question. <laughs> that really scares me because sometimes I think I'm on the pod people's uh, planet. Well, that's alliterative, pod people's planet. And there is no way to, no device. I tend to use uh, Gurdjieff's methods of shock and awe, uh, not bombing uh, like, uh, you know. Uh, but uh, nevertheless, I think that if you don't stare into the abyss, you're going to fall into it anyway. We come here for a reason. What that reason is, is probably a matter of um, individual discovery. But one of the things is you have the option of trying to cross the great abyss uh, or uh, not trying. It doesn't matter in terms of mortality. We're all mortal. We come here to be mortal, I think. I mean, beyond that, you know, you can get into philosophical what happens after we shuffle off this mortal coil. And I have my opinions, but they're just that. And so are anybody else's opinions. You know, they're, they may be based, I try to make mine based on research and facts and so forth. But uh, whether they are or not, nevertheless, mortality it probably underlies almost everything that human beings are involved in. And you can avoid thinking about it or talking about it, or you can get too involved in it. Uh, my dad was uh, very morbid and that uh, didn't make him live any longer or any shorter as far as I know, you know, but it was, uh, uh, I just feel that you really need to, uh, reach a point at which you look into the abyss without the abyss grabbing you and Nietzsche's, uh, you know, staring back at you. And I try to do that. Doesn't mean I, you know, don't have my moments of run away, run away, run away. But I try to know those things in philosophical terms. It is interesting that uh, the school of magic that I uh, come out of has as a prerequisite 200 hours minimum of psychotherapy. Well, I have a lot more than that, as some people could tell. And uh, uh, also that you have a, um, a good grounding in jhana or sitting yoga. Uh, that's jhana or uh, in China it would be Chan and in Japan, better known as Zen, you really need to be able to do sitting jhana meditation so that you become witness to and participant in without becoming self-indulgent in the fear of it. So you see the abyss and you say, hmm, in my yogic fashion, that seems to be the abyss. And it works pretty well, actually. I mean, not always. I've had bad moments. But uh, on the whole, I think the secret is just to take it as it is and have a certain level of detachment from your own concerns while having a great deal of compassion for those of others. And compassion isn't always, you know, patting on the head nice, nice. It's also realizing that somebody has to as Gurdjieff would have put it, wake them up. 
they're all asleep and you can sleep your whole uh, life away. And then, in my opinion, you come back until you get it right. I'm not sure uh, like which sort of school of the occult uh, you're talking about in particular. I have, I have my suspicions, but it does seem useful to have that sort of ability to step outside of yourself when, and, and really be objective about, you know, what you're, what you're looking at, what you're facing, what your particular quest is, because if there's anything that I've, I've noticed, I, and I have, I have a friend who's, who's, family is also kind of tightly wound up with kind of the old school wave of Fortiana and paranormal research. Like her father is actually one of the, one of the few people in the country who's actually got like a, a degree in it from like when universities actually took it kind of seriously. And one of the things that she always told me about, uh, about everybody who, you know, I, I've been reading for years down to like John Keel is that any everybody who made a habit of sort of going toe to toe with these forces and looking it straight in the eye, it has this sort of eroding quality to it that if you're not properly centered in yourself and you're not adjusted to really deal with what it is that you're constantly putting yourself in the path of, by the time you're done, you're just a shell of yourself. And so that ability to, to kind of remove your ego from the quest, from the, the journey seems to be uh, uh, not just useful, but like a really, a great survival tool, like a, a way oh, to just yeah. make sure that you get through and you are, you just don't succumb to the strangeness. Yeah. And that's, uh, I've seen it happen with so many people that they actually make a, a good deal of, of progress in their lives uh, in self-realization and they reach a point at which a mirror appears and they don't like what they see and they run and then they spend the rest of their existence running. And the key is face your fears and uh, take a look in the mirror and uh, be okay with what you see there. Even if it's something really, really strange. <laughs> God knows it is with me. So, uh, uh, like, would you would you imagine the the that sort of mirror moment being the actual being a sort of point on the road or the sort of initiating event? Because I have my own story uh, where just everything kind of came apart and the wheels came off the machine, and I really almost went over the edge. But up to that point, I was a listed insufferable materialist. It wasn't until after I had kind of passed through the gauntlet and I had that real sort of night of the Sphinx that I started to look at things a little bit more spiritually. And like, oh, five years later, here I am. And uh, like, you know, like I, I spare no opportunity to ab absorb knowledge about the occult for, you know, uh, what I, I uh, what I consider a very valid reason that's really only you know that that's really only useful to me well i started out <clears throat> in uh, ufo research ufology well research maybe should be in quotes i'm not sure because i was like 14 you know and uh, hanging out with uh, gene steinberg and uh, the late tim beckley and so forth and we were all just barely in our teens and probably there's a freudian explanation for our interest, but you know, we, in any case, 
here here some of us still are, you know, and uh, we're no longer teenagers or even have really clear memories of those long ago times when the dinosaurs ruled the earth. <laughs> so, um, um, nevertheless, in ufology, after about five years of buying into the uh, ETH, the extraterrestrial hypothesis, which it isn't, it's an idea, not a, a formal theory of any sort, I realized that isn't an explanation at all. And because there's no reason to think that that is the case. Uh, and I started to uh, pull other strings that I had already had an interest in, but no connection to in the case of ufology. And I realized, hey, these all have certain common denominators, the cryptids, the assertions of magic and the assertions of uh, paranormal research, especially things like uh, uh, remote viewing. They are simply arbitrary differing terms for one underlying reality. And uh, I spent some years trying to uh, discern what that underlying reality is. And the closest I've been able to come that sort of overarching all of these different areas from, uh, from yetis to uh, academic paranormal research is found in the many worlds interpretation of quantum physics, which is we are among a vast and some would say infinite number of parallel universes. Um, the current thinking in orthodox science is that we can know that they exist through secondhand information, but we can't expect to interpenetrate these other realities or for them to interpenetrate us, our consensus reality. Uh, I think all of these phenomena uh, give the lie to that because in fact, uh, cryptids have the characteristic of things that come into being and vanish from being. UFOs have the same characteristic. Psychic talents, one of the frustrations of academic research is the first few tests on a, on a, uh, a talented person are usually the best results. After that, they get have a boredom factor. And of course, magic is all about inciting a certain level of understanding so that you can pierce the veil of reality. And uh, uh, I think that all of these things suggest that we are dealing with an underlying reality that has something to do with there being other worlds that do, in fact, interpenetrate our own in a seemingly haphazard fashion, like glitches in the matrix is my favorite <laughs> It does seem like that. Like I watch so much of this stuff um, just on online and on TV, just anything a little paranormal will pull me in and, and really hold my attention. And the sort of prevailing idea, particularly about, you know, just because UFOs are kind of a thing right now and they're really having a moment, but the idea is this might be a threat to national security because look at this technology. And they always show you the, the, the Tic Tac UFO from the Nimitz, but at the same time, there's always this weird sort of ripple effect around the margins whenever this stuff happens that suggests that while there's always a sort of central event that captures everybody's 
like attention. There's always something strange happening on the margins, like uh, that, that feels so weird. And like, it's almost as though in order for a UFO to sort of cross into our, our, I don't know, our dimension or you, our universe, it takes a very blunt instrument to do so because uh, I just reread the Mothman prophecies uh, a couple of months ago. And one of the things that really kind of stood out to me because I don't think I really caught this the first time is there's really hardly any Mothman in the story. It's really all about the men in black stuff that was happening around, uh, around Point Pleasant at the same time. And the way that that stuff is all recorded is so bizarre and nonsensical and weird. It's almost like, Mothman came shooting through and the membrane separating us from them just kind of like bounced back and forth wildly and all this crazy shit like the what like the men in black behaving strangely just visiting people going you're not going to write about that are you like what like what is that all about I mean it's related somehow but it's just so bizarre and so strange it's connected but like just barely so it's almost as though whatever it is that they do in order to come here it has this after effect due to whatever it is they're doing that's just it just causes bonkers random shit to happen in its wake Mm. well you know there are two books really that zero in on that i won't say the mothman phenomena because there were Thunderbird stories going back to antiquity, and there are Mothman cases virtually every day, mostly now from the Midwest, not from Appalachia, where which is where it started, or at least came to public attention. I'm not sure there are differences in reality as opposed to differences in how much coverage is, is given. And uh, Gray Barker wrote... Uh, the most insightful book on, uh, it's called The Silver Bridge. And I wrote the original introduction and sort of Barker sent the manuscript uh, to me and to his uh, pal, Jim Mosley. And Mosley said, oh, I'm a fact freak. This is weird stuff, you know? And then uh, I said, Gray, this is, this is your magnum opus. Not they knew too much about the flying saucer. It's a good book, but... Uh, this is this is the the only solution you'll ever have to these mysteries, and it also, along with Keel's book, Keel was a practical person. Um, his education, if you want to call it that, was in uh, the men's magazines of the late fifties, early sixties, uh, Saga and Argosy and True, and. Uh, that is reflected in, in what he experienced. And Gray uh, was essentially a native of Appalachia, um, specifically of West Virginia, born technically in Virginia, but I mean, he spent most of his life in Clarksburg, West Virginia, soaking up the local lore, had a degree, uh, a college degree in uh, um, English Lit, so he you know, was conversant in folklore from an academic point of view, but he was surrounded by folklore in the flesh, so to speak. And uh, uh, that's what the Silver Bridge is essentially a, a take as if it were all a dream, sort of the 
apocalypse now of ufology and weird events. I mean, Mothman is equipped uh, by definition and UFOs are whatever they are. I can tell you what they're not. They're not UAPs because the government suddenly has an interest in UAP and those people who want the government to reveal all of its secrets, I always say, look, the government projects in this area have consisted of a relatively junior officer, an, enlist, an enlisted flunky, excuse me, enlisted airman, and a secretary. And if you think that's uh, a better resources than any of the, uh, quote, private UFO organizations, you got another thing coming, Jose, really. Uh, I wanted to go back to something. You had mentioned, um, you had mentioned your father, and I, I talked about this in another episode uh, prior, mostly in just my, my particular experience as well. My parents were not necessarily morbid people, but I was raised in a very Catholic house, and there is a sort of innate morbid nature to that. And I think we've talked about this a little bit, how I just can't seem to shake my fascination for, for church, really, in all of the, you know, the sort of the Baroque style of it. But I, I've always sort of pointed to that as kind of ground zero for my interest and my fascination with with this sort of thing i mean was your father involved in this was he interested in this or was it just a sort of you know just a kind of just the average melancholy oh no it wasn't average at all i'm not sure what the source is because uh, let's see he passed on when i was 24 and uh I never reached the point in his lifetime of really asking him what he thought about things. I only know the anecdotes from uh, sort of him to me. Both of my parents were very indulgent of my interests, which really go back to childhood. Um, uh, occasionally I get asked, uh, well, what got you interested in this? And that I can't really answer because I can recall things that stick out in my memory from the age of three or four. Um, uh, you know, the, uh, the 1952 UFO flap over DC, which uh, uh, created such a stir at the CIA because it violated uh, restricted airspace over the Pentagon and over the, uh, I think the White House and the Capitol caused a lot of jets to scramble. But of course, in the atmosphere of the McCarthy era, uh, it was seen as possibly a case of Soviet interference in these private UFO groups. Oh, sure. That, I mean, how things have changed. Commies are under the bed. You yeah. Know? <laughs> yeah. Like nothing, nothing's really changed. I mean, the whole Luis Elizondo thing is, I mean, what if it's China? What if it's Russia? You know, so it, 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 it'll never, it'll always be, well, there's, there's a chance that it's something, you know, supernatural or paranormal but it's probably communists well the argument i make about the sort of secret weapons ours or theirs theirs uh whoever there is this year the the season of the month i uh, i kind of think that western civ was dependent on the evils of communism and when that fell apart they went, uh, well, we don't have anything to fight now. Let's fight each other, okay? And how about those Arabs? You know, how, yeah. It, we're I'm, sort of short of, uh, you know, <laughs> uh, 
total destruction enemies these days. So we have these, oh my gosh, North Korea has a missile. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, it does definitely uh, seem like, um, it's almost like after the Cold War uh, and the 90s happened, without having that sort of monolithic villain in American culture, there was nothing to really be afraid of. And so, you know, eight, the eight years of Clinton was a, was a really sort of strange period where everything kind of hit this weird monoculture and nothing really, there was like this, there was no excitement. Pop culture became, I mean, with the exception of the X-Files, really became very flat. Everything was romantic comedies. Everything was Friends and Seinfeld. It was like this kind of low murmur of pop culture that was happening at the time. And it wasn't really until 9-11 happened that it was like, okay, now we've got somebody to be afraid of again. And then having waged this war for 20 years, we have wrung every ounce of fear and blood out of it. But we're also coming off a profoundly strange four years where, of course, it makes perfect sense that within the absence of anybody to like an actual nation state or an ideology to be afraid of, it makes perfect sense that they can actually mine aliens and UFOs as an object of fear, which is just so strange to me because people are, are buying it. It was even, uh, to, to give you an idea of the roots of that, that attitude, all you have to do is look at the original version of Invasion of the Body Snatchers, which is a great science fiction movie in its own right, but is widely seen that at the time it was a metaphor for the evil Soviets absorbing our individuality. Right. That is actually you know, incorporated into the, uh, uh, the notion of the pod people, uh, you go to sleep and under your bed is a pod and the pod replaces you. Um, you, you don't really need the Soviet Union to have that. All you need is a land developer who builds ticky tacky little houses, little <laughs> pink houses for you and me. And they're, and they're everywhere, especially up around, uh, around here. Like there's a, a town that I kind of grew up around where, you know, for the longest time, I mean, it was just a strategic air command base and with a, a nearby sort of Navy yard. Uh, and it was all of a sudden it was on the sort of like top 10 hidden gems in America lists and in came the real estate developers. And now practically none of that city exists because it's all been torn down to put up luxury condos that people own, but nobody lives in. So it's outrageously expensive just to live near that city. And yet nobody can actually be in it. It's, it's such a strange, I mean, that, that is far more terrifying to me than uh, pod people. Yeah. Well, uh, I think that it basically is the same thing though. It's saying the same thing, which is if you're not careful, you'll get absorbed by the, the nebulous other and whatever the nebulous other is defined as yeah, that that is a real problem. It's hardly worth, uh, you know, building enough nukes to destroy the planet hmm. to save the people by destroying 
the people. And then uh, in the 90s, uh, 1990s, we should say, we're 20 years into this uh, century, um, all of them at war with uh, our major enemy, Afghanistan, right? With a side trip to Iraq, known for its terrorists, Good grief, they hung terrorists from the yard arm. That was, that was one of the major issues. And we're always at war with Iran, you know, uh, under our tutelage until they weren't under our tutelage. So it's, um, I don't know, it's bewildering. I do think that it has, from a sociological point of view, it has to do with in general, I was very active in the anti-Vietnam, anti-war movement. And there was always the question, would you have fought in any of America's wars? And the general consensus was, I would have fought for the North in the Civil War had I been around. And I certainly would have fought the Nazis in World War II. And uh, of course, that was the last declared war that we had. <laughs> so uh, you had the sense from the World War II generation, which had grown up in the Great Depression, that uh, life had some meaning. And a good many of those people, uh, a disproportionate number of members of Congress and everything from uh, Congress to the White House uh, was made up for a generation and a half of World War II vets. The last of them retired in the 1990s. And now we have a situation that to me is a pre-Civil War situation where you have people who didn't, who were not yet born uh, during that period of a, a very real threat of fascism ruling the world. And I wouldn't even be here were, were it not defeated because I belong to the wrong ethnicity. You know, the yeah. Hebrew hammer. It's hard. It's, uh, it's hard being God's chosen people. Yes, it's very hard. How <laughs> odd of God to choose the Jews. <laughs> or my little poem about the uh, Socialist Workers Party. We support all third world nationalist coups, except, of course, if they're nationalist Jews. That's didn't go over that well with the Young Socialist Alliance. That was in grad school <laughs> at the uh, University of Arizona. So let me uh, let me let me put it. Let me ask you this: you've you've been you've been you've been chasing the unknown and and peering into the into the darkness. Um, you have probably got some perspectives that uh, I'm unlikely to find with with anybody else, and I'm wondering if you have any stories uh, just in your travels of anything that has ever struck you as particularly, particularly frightening when you, when, when encountered either in the moment or afterwards? Yeah, but most of those would be very early in my experience. Um, I think that I know people who are afraid of ghosts. I'm afraid of no ghosts, you know, I mean, uh, I go to the haunted uh, cemetery and there's no ghosts there. 
I think maybe there are no ghosts. And that somehow is a downer for me. You know, you have these TV programs, which I detest. It's what I like about Hellier and hate about the uh, overly commercialized, you know, we ran out of World War II stock footage. So now it's UFO hour, the ghost hunting people, two plumbers from New Jersey, really. I mean, <laughs> it's, uh, and every time they hear a rat cry, bring out our EVP or NLP, whatever. Uh, oh, it's moving. There must be electromagnetic pulses in this house. Yes, the wiring is really from 1900 and it's atrocious. I mean, I prefer there be something when it, it sort of validates that notion of there's something really beyond the normal here. And to me, that's comforting. But early on, I'll tell you two anecdotes, maybe three, because I do go on, heaven knows. And the, the mine are all ludicrous in the retelling, but at the time, they were uh, dazzling or frightening, depending. Uh, in one case, um, I was about three or four, and uh, my parents loved to go to Miami every July. My father would uh, drop us off at a hotel in Miami and go back to work up here in Georgia and then come back for his vacation and then take us back. So I spent like a total of probably a year in Miami, you know, in one month increments in July. Well, I was there in July uh, waiting. This is, it has to be that early because I, uh, uh, I, I got swimming lessons when I was four. So I did not know how to swim. I was waiting and I see a contrail in the sky. You know, one of those chemtrails now that, yeah, yeah, right. It was a contrail of a, of a, what were then a relatively new technology, jet planes. Uh, and so I'm looking and I thought probably in kid think, not using the word contrail, oh, that's a plane. And I hear another kid, same general age group, a little further down the beach saying, look, there goes a soul ascending into heaven. And that moment has always stuck with me because the interpretation transcends the actual experience. Second story. Um, and this one, I've never been able to explain. I was watching a program on TV called The Stately Ghosts of England. That dates it to 1965. So I had fought off the dinosaurs and was sitting in the den watching this program because I already was involved in paranormal and UFO and cryptid and blah, 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 research uh, or interest probably would be better than research. Uh, I don't like to use John Keel's term for us, which was buff. <laughs> oh, they're just buffs. Well, then what was he, you know, because, <laughs> but uh, be that as it may. Uh, John and I got along. It's okay. I, I, I don't think his research was as deep as a lot of people think. And I wish they'd make a movie out of, well, one of my books. But uh, 
And uh, I, I think that Richard Gere would be a really appropriate Alan Greenfield, unlike uh, he definitely was nothing like. John he definitely Keel. was not a definitely not a John Keel. Uh, in some ways, I'd say I'd say you somebody know, is actually making a movie out of one of your books, and that Hallier really is so yeah. heavily heavily dependent on it. I mean, all of the the lore that is established in that relating to stuff that you laid out uh, with. Uh, I mean, not not to imply that it's that it's like uh, like just stories, but just everything has to do with the cipher. Everything has to do with Terry wrist every, you know, it's, you know, your, your work is so tightly wound into the sort of the fabric of that, of that ongoing story. It, I'm sure it would be really nice to profit from it. Well, yeah. I mean, uh, um, uh, the complete secret cipher, the euphonauts, always sold pretty well, going back to the original edition from Illuminate Press, which uh, was just Secret Cipher. Uh, I wrote the two books as part of a trilogy, and only now that uh, there's some talk by my current publisher about, you know, sales were always modest until Hellier. After Hellier, Suddenly, I've gone from being almost obscure to being almost famous. <laughs> and uh, the, the correlate of that is that uh, that book has become kind of a bestseller. And, and I kind of wish, you know, at the time I had these three interviews, two of them with this Terry guy who I really only knew for about a year. And the other being with our uh, local uh, Atlanta Discordian, uh, Carrie Thornley. And I thought, oh, the one with, with Carrie talks a little bit too much about uh, his uh, experiences being the uh, illegitimate son of Adolf Hitler and not enough about, you know, the phenomena, whereas the interviews with Terry uh, uh, were you know, right in line with the content of the books. So I use those rather than the Carrie interview. Well, the Carrie interview is now a book that somebody else, uh, someone who uh, asked me, can I borrow the tapes? I want to transcribe them. And I was tooling around the internet and lo and behold, it's a book. Um, I mean, yeah. it's just, and apparently, you know, Carrie was a, in Atlanta, he was a street person. He washed dishes for a living and lived with his mother, I think, to the very end of his life. Uh, cut way too short. Kerry was the street anarchist. Uh, in fact, we were our Haymarket uh, martyrs of, it's like commie martyrs high uh, in the, in the Fireside Theater. Do you go to commie martyrs high school? Yes. <laughs> so uh, we looked for Kerry and didn't find him. And uh, I wound up using the Terry does rhyme, doesn't it? Does. Uh, interview. And, uh, that became more of a focus than I would, you know, I mean, it was an afterthought, not a, not a focus. The focus is on the cipher in both yeah. uh, Secret Cipher, the Euphonauts, and the sequel, Secret Rituals, the Men in Black. And uh, uh, my current publisher combined them and put it out as the complete Secret Cipher of the Euphonauts. Uh, in one volume. And like I said, there's discussion about 
the third book that I never really got around to, but there are pieces of it in all kinds of places. So who knows, maybe that will come out. I wanted to call it Secret Teachings of the Third Order. But uh, yeah. <laughs> third Order is still missing. That probably will not be the title. <laughs> well, anyway, so let's get back to the stately ghosts of England. So I'm watching this program relatively late at night. My parents have already adjourned each to their separate bedroom, I must say. Uh, Northwest Atlanta, also known as the Gilded uh, Ghetto, uh, where all the uh, wealthy uh, Jews of that period actually live there about two blocks from there now, you know, and this neighborhood, unlike your neighborhood and other neighborhoods in Atlanta, it's exactly the same as it was when I was a kid, you know, tree cover, nice house, it's also still pricey, but we'll pass on that, uh, nevertheless, so I'm watching this program all alone in the din on the big television, you know, 20, 21 inch screen, I think. And it had some fascinating footage in it. And right in the middle of the program, I hear distinctly and loudly from the kitchen. Oh, and I was scared to death. I got up, muttered every prayer I have ever learned to no effect, started to run to my daddy's room to, because he could protect me. I don't know what I was thinking. And before I got there, I calmed down. Maybe, maybe it was the dog. It wasn't the dog. The dog was there for 10 years and never made a sound like that before or since. I went back, sat back down, but now I'm pumping adrenaline and I'm thinking, could I have fallen asleep and dreamed it? Well, whatever it was, it answered me because it went, ah. It was another 10 years before I could watch The Stately Ghosts of England. <laughs> I went through. Did my father sneak downstairs and sneak through the other door into the kitchen and was fun in me? No, it was just not his style. Was it the dog? And the dog across the hall on cue is now barking at me. Shut up! No! No! Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I heckle this dog. It belongs to a Navy vet across the hall. And it's this little tiny dog with a loud voice that I can even hear when I've got earphones on, listening to music, trying trying to fall asleep in the middle of the night. Shut up! I'm on, I'm on the air! I'm almost famous! Doesn't care. Barks yep. at everything. Now, small dogs get the biggest barks. So, so, experience number two was truly frightening, but now, in retrospect, it's truly interesting, you know, because clearly something happened. The first time, maybe I did doze off, Second time, I'm pumping adrenaline, scared as hell, trying to calm myself down, and I hear it again. No mistaking it, I'm watching The Stately Ghosts of England, a nonfiction program, uh, one of the first really on, on you know, network television, as it was then, uh, to uh, take uh, unusual phenomena seriously. And... Uh, had a very interesting piece of footage from their time-lapse photography left overnight in this haunted mansion and ending, not the Disney haunted mansion, 
a real genuine UK type haunted mansion. And, uh, and I got a response from otherware. The third example, and the last I'll do, because I've got to go in about 10 minutes, because I do go on, heaven knows. So. <laughs> but I'll give you this one as briefly as I can. Um, I used to uh, live in Ackworth, Georgia, which is a suburb of a suburb of Atlanta, just north of Kennesaw and south of Marietta. Um, and uh, I lived there for 10 years from uh, January 2002 until about four years ago when I moved back in my old neighborhood because I had an op opportunity here. Um, um, I would take long, long walks late at night, still do. Um, and there was a, an alley that I walked through on the way home. And as I approached it in the middle of the night, I always saw this thing ahead, which looked like a cat on a, um, a piece of material that was just thrown away, you know, just in, in the alley. But when I got close to it, it was just a piece of material that I was, I was thinking about, well, when we, we see something that we can't resolve, we'll resolve it in some sort of way that makes sense to us. And when I got closer, there was no cat there. So that must have happened 30 or 40 times that I passed it and said, oh, well, there's the piece of material and that I mistake, mistook for a cat. On the, I don't know exactly how many occasions, but the months later, after having seen this piece of material repeatedly, I approach it wanting to, you know, maybe I should move this or whatever. There was a cat sitting on it that looked exactly like the cat that I had projected. So I got a little closer. I did everything, but you know, went, hey cat. And uh, the cat would not move. So what was I gonna do? I wasn't gonna, you know, I didn't have my camera with me. So I wasn't gonna take a picture, but it was there. There was no question about it. So I continued on home. And the next night I was out again and it was just the piece of paper again. I don't know whether all of those times that I was projecting a cat, whether I conjured up a real cat for that moment or a, uh, a tulpa of a cat, if there is such a thing. The Cat Tulpas of the World, Volume 21. Um, but that was a case where I, it wasn't quite a ghost, but it was a ghostly presence in a the least likely possible location where you were expecting it, you know? So the, those are the range of experiences that I've had. That one was like an epiphany. Yeah. The middle one was terrifying. And the first one was me being a rationalist at the age of three or four. Um, have you ever listened to the podcast, last podcast on the left? Yeah, I think I've been on it actually. Ah, um, one of their episodes is actually, uh, it's an early one called ghost cats of Georgia. <laughs> well, there you go. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Well, I can, I can bear witness to their being such beings. Yep. So do you have a final question before I disappear into the ether? <sighs> I do. I do not. I think that that is a great place to leave it. And, uh, I am, I am so grateful that you joined me. This has been, uh, this has been very exciting. 
Um, I've enjoyed it too, because it's, I wish they were all this casual. So what do you think about flying saucers? Are they visitors from another planet? Well, Mr. Host, what I think, and we'll get to that right after these words from our really kooky sponsors. <laughs> All right. Hey, um, where can people find you? Uh, they can go to Google, and my name is spelled A-L-L-E-N space G-R-E-E-N-F-I-E-L-D, and you'll find bunches of stuff. Or um, go to Amazon or any of those uh the usual places where you find books and complete secret cipher. The Euphonops is out there and still selling very well. Let's hope for a hell year three, you know, the trickster revealed. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. And uh, um, also the new book, the grail within with an introduction by Stephanie quick. This is a book about sexual magic, including my own experiences. But we'll save that for another occasion. Yeah, we'll do that for Fears the Mind Killer. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> nice. Right. And this is a perfect month to debut your program because the new version of Dune is coming out for better or worse. Right, right. And uh, we are really talking about everybody's gom jabbar, different for different people, but sometimes it's more painful than others. <laughs> anyway, thanks for the opportunity. And let me know if and when this ever appears anywhere. And oh, yeah. I'll certainly add it to my list so that my many fans, one, two, three, and many enemies <laughs> can go to it and say, uh, Greenfield has gone off the rails again. All right. Uh, thank you so much. Thank you for listening to Fear is the Mind Killer. Once again, I'd like to ask that if you liked what you heard, that you subscribe to me on Spotify or Apple Podcasts, and while you're at it, a five-star review would be greatly appreciated. If you'd like to follow me on social media, you can find me on Twitter at ThatWerewolfThough, that's T-H-O, and on Instagram as FitMKPod. Join me again in two weeks when I once again dive into the depths of fear and personal horror on Fear is the Mind Killer.